is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. episode 8. This is part 2 of Francis Milton Trollope's fiction and we are going to be reading the concluding part of her short story The Butt which was published in the new monthly magazine in March 1844. So just a disclaimer, we may well have forgotten which voices we used last week. I think I forgot halfway through so they may be subject to change. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't keep track of it at the time, let alone a week later. I know. Charlotte's gonna sound strange. Charlotte's the only character I can remember right now, so (laughs) that's why I'm picking on her. (laughs) Charlotte was memorable. The Butt by Mrs. Trollope. Nature hath many such. Concluded from page 214. It really seemed very likely that Fanny Belmont would prove right, and that the practicing charades must be more delightful still than the acting them, for it was hardly possible to conceive that any occupation could prove as agreeable as that which now brought all the family together into the drawing room the moment that breakfast was over, with the addition of the two young men enlisted in their service, and who gave the best proof that they found that service pleasant by constantly arriving at the moment appointed though that moment was rather an early one. Mrs. Belmont, though a queer woman in some respects, was quite wise enough to know that such a degree of intimacy as these daily meetings must inevitably produce could not safely be permitted with everybody, and accordingly she had taken care to inform herself very accurately who and what the Mr. Wilmot was, who, from having evidently been much used to the amusement, was confessed by the whole company to be the most accomplished actor among them. All her inquiries tended to prove that no lady, having three daughters to marry, could have been more fortunate in the choice of a playfellow for them. Charles Wilmot had a pretty little unencumbered estate of 5,000 a year, and was nearly connected with more than one noble family, had just left the university with the reputation of high talent and excellent character, and, though last, not least in the catalogue of his perfections, if he did happen to fall in love, he was perfectly at liberty to indulge his fancy. For he was not only fatherless, motherless, and of age, but had no relation, either male or female, who could have thought themselves justified in advising him under any such circumstances to take care what he was about. As to William Morton, his race and expectations had for some time been well known to every member of the Belmont family. If a certain uncle, still unmarried, continued to live and happened to die a bachelor, William Morton would, of necessity, become a wealthy baronet, a contingency which was considered as quite sufficient to justify his rehearsing love scenes with all the Miss Belmonts in turn. So the practicing went on charmingly, and not the less so because Mrs. Belmont appeared to have given up her threatened persecutions of Mary Bell, for either she had forgotten her altogether as a created thing who could have no more to do with the charade acting than a table or chair, or else the apparition of the momentary gleam of bright intelligence which had startled all the family was remembered, and the provident mother thought that it might be quite quite as well she should continue stitching at the little table behind the sofa in the front drawing room. This state of things went on for three long, delightful mornings, during which the characters of the first part had been imagined and allotted, and the progress of the dialogue sketched out. Incubus was, at the particular request of Mr. Wilmot, the word chosen for the first performance, and of this the first act was to be an inn. 
No landlord could be mustered, but Mrs. Valmont had consented to enact the part of the landlady, conscious from the result of the quick counsel called in her secret heart that the costume might easily be made exceedingly becoming to her handsome face and person, without at all losing sight of the character. Morton undertook to be a waiter, who should appear with the proper jerk as often as he was called for, and moreover undertake by the opportunities afforded in his official capacity to satisfy the curiosity of a sentimental traveler, Wilmot, concerning a mysterious young lady who, with her maid, had been for some days occupying an apartment at the inn with a very evident wish for concealment. Richard was to be this young lady's choleric father, who should arrive at the inn in search of her in the disguise of a peddler and sing the song of Autolycus. The mysterious lady was to be personated by Fanny, Margaret readily undertaking the part of the maid, tempted thereto by Morton saying that he must have a coaxing, love-making sort of scene with the soubrette for the purpose of finding out who the mysterious lady might be. Charlotte was well contented to enact the fair maid of the inn, thinking that it would enable her to be as coquettish in costume, style, and manner as her heart could wish. William Belmont was to be a detestable old bachelor, intended for the young lady's husband by her tyrannical father. All this was quite perfect, and it was clear to everybody that no more parts could be invented, and that Mary Bell, that poor Mary Bell, might be left in peace. The first arranging the plot made a very busy morning indeed, for there was a usual fear in everybody that they would not have enough to do. Therefore, during the whole of that period, the fact of Mary Bell's having absented herself from the drawing rooms altogether was scarcely remarked and not at all commented upon by anyone. On the second, the order of exits and entrances was settled, and on the third, the respective characters slightly muttered over what they intended to say, and the attitudes and the taking of hands and the tapping of shoulders were canvassed and practiced. This part of the business required a great deal of consultation and considerable repetition before anything like a decision was arrived at as to how it should be. But at length, however, it was all declared to be quite right and proper, and then arose considerable doubts and uncertainty as to the second syllable. Nobody had thought about it when they seized upon in, always a favorite, and convertible to anything, or they might have divided it otherwise and made it ink and you. Spelling was unanimously declared to be of no consequence. But it was too late now, for it was quite impossible to give up what had been so beautifully arranged, and so, after long pondering, it was determined that one of the girls should run upstairs and bring down Mary Bell, who certainly would not have ventured to write the word had she not heard of its being performed. Margaret, the messenger, had found her cousin very contentedly engaged with a book in the little attic assigned to her use. But coming from her mother fully armed with all the power of the word must, she dispatched her business very quickly and returned to the drawing room accompanied by Mary Bell. "'What did you ever see made of the second syllable of incubus, Mary Bell?' said her aunt as she entered. "'We have taken in for the first, of course.' "'The word Q, or the letter Q,' replied Mary Bell. "'Very well, my dear, that will do,' returned her aunt with a nod of dismissal, and Mary Bell turned to leave the room." "'Stay a moment, Belle-Marie,' exclaimed William Belmont. "'May not Mary Bell stay and have to perform the part of audience, mother?' he added. "'We really want someone to tell us, in the parts where we are all engaged together, whether we are right or wrong.' "'May? To be sure she may if she likes,' replied Mrs. Belmont. "'Do you suppose, Sir Conqueror, that I desired her to take herself off? Indeed, I did recollect the advantage of having a looker-on, but did not feel quite certain that Mary Bell would like to be useful.' But of course, we shall all be greatly obliged to her if she will. Indeed, I will be useful if I can, replied Mary Bell, with more animation of manner than she had ever found courage to display before, since her arrival in Bolton Street. Very well, then, sit down in that chair, said Mrs. Belmont. That, I take it, will be just the place in the house, and it is there we must put Lady Montravers, if we can have her, for you know she is a critic par excellence. Sit down there, Mary Bell, and keep your eyes steadily fixed upon us. You must be careful not to look off, because if you do, it will be of no use at all sitting there. What we want is to know whether we seem to leave any awkward pauses, and also whether we appear to hurry through the business too much. Do you understand? Yes, aunt, I think so, replied Mary Bell, conscious, however, as she said so, that she should never have courage to tell any of them they were wrong. And then the important question was put as to whether Q or Q should be chosen. 
The possibility of having an ironing board covered with a green cloth put upon the scene to represent a billiard table was warmly canvassed. And Charlotte remembered taking a lesson once from Lord Somebody Something upon playing with a cue instead of a mace, and she was fully aware how many very good attitudes might be introduced. So she voted for cue and the billiard table, and said she was quite ready to undertake the scene, and that she and the waiter might amuse themselves in this way without the least violation of probability. The waiter-elect seconded the proposal with great eloquence, declaring that the scene would be exceedingly effective and highly comic, but Mrs. Belmont objected strongly to the difficulty of setting up the billiard table. "'Really, dear mamma,' remonstrated Charlotte, "'one would think there was not a servant in the house. You know we are to have a curtain, and anything you know may be done behind the curtain.' This sally was received with a loud laugh by the young lady's lively brothers, and after a little more discussion, Mrs. Belmont yielded to the general opinion that a billiard table would make an admirable scene— and Q was decided on as the second syllable, Wilmot stipulating, however, that to prevent the entire action from being too much suspended during this second act, the father should arrive in the course of it and break up the game by a vehement demand for his lost daughter. Then the syllable bus was taken as the familiar diminutive of omnibus, and the young lady, informed of her father's arrival, determined, with the assistance of the amiable but unknown Wilmot, to escape by means of this humble vehicle, the approach of which was to be announced by the waiter. But the old man rushes in, separates Fanny and Wilmot, and the bus is employed to carry her away. In the last scene, the tyrannical father was to be discovered restlessly asleep upon a couch. Troubled dreams torment him, and a species of nightmare springing on his chest tortures him a while, and he awakes, fully persuaded that the devil has been sent to punish him, and in the terror this idea occasions, he consents to the marriage of his daughter with Wilmot, who turns out to be a gentleman of high degree. All this went vastly well, and seemed to offer sufficient opportunity for acting. But there was one difficulty which seemed to puzzle them all. How and by whom was the incubus to be enacted? "'Did you ever see this done, Mary Bell?' demanded Mrs. Belmont, suddenly addressing her niece. "'Yes, aunt,' was the reply. "'And how was the incubus represented?' "'By a child, dressed in black, with great red eyes and a large pair of horns,' said Mary Bell. "'Delicious!' exclaimed the party, almost in general chorus. "'Delicious!' said Mrs. Belmont, shaking her head dolefully. But where are we to find a child capable of doing it? I'm sure I don't know, responded Charlotte, knitting her brows. Oh, mother, the child would be such a horrid bore. I have not the least doubt in the world, but the, the little wretch would choke me, cried Richard Belmont. And besides the terror I should be in for my life, only imagine what a plague it would be to have a horrid little spy of a creature admitted behind the scenes, who would be sure to gather all sorts of tales when he got home again which would as surely travel through the whole circle of our acquaintance and render the whole thing a failure. I shall positively refuse to act if any children are admitted behind the scenes. As most of the party agreed with him in this prejudice against receiving assistance from the shooting ideas of the younger part of the creation, all thoughts of an infant incubus was abandoned, and the blank-looking party stood in a circle, in great doubt and difficulty as to a substitute. "'Could it not be done by machinery?' said Mr. Morton. "'Yes, to be sure it could,' cried the lion-hearted Richard. "'What should prevent it?' "'I am afraid the expense might be considerable, Richard,' said his mother, looking a little grave. "'Nonsense, my dear mother,' he replied. "'You don't suppose I want to have something as delicate in its movements as a watch, do you? "'Why, I have seen at school a hundred things made to jump as high as an incubus need do. "'I will speak to the carpenter about it.' Let us go on now, as if the incubus part of the business was done. Trust to me for it. He was gladly obeyed. Everything did go on, and all the better, certainly, for having Mary Bell to look at them. For no sooner did she see reason to believe that her aunt's threats concerning the necessity of her being useful had no object more terrible than the making her sit still and look on, than she became extremely anxious to be of service to them in reality and having luckily witnessed, while yet but a child, a good many performances of the same kind at a merry-making mansion near her home, she was able to give many hints that were really of importance. As the business went on, and the second and third charades were formed, her courage increased, because not a word was said about her being expected to act. 
She no longer kept her eyes fixed either upon her needle or the floor, nor did she tremble as heretofore at the sound of her own voice. There was something in the very nature of the office assigned her that seemed congenial to her spirit. A sweeter-tempered creature never lived than Mary Bell, and though her constitutional shyness had of late been irritated by the eternal quizzing, nay mockery, of her cousins into an almost morbid desire of escaping observation, the idea of being useful to others made her forget herself, and released her for a time from that terrible sensitiveness which genuine shyness produces, and which is probably more painful in its effects than those who have never suffered from it can easily imagine. The great source of Mary Bell's present relief from this suffering, however, did not so much arise from her own increased courage as from the total absorption of all the faculties of her cousins in preparing themselves for exhibition. Mary Bell had been the standing joke of the family ever since she entered the house, and never had the shafts of their boasted wit wanted an object since she had been within their reach. But now they had no time for fun, no leisure to invent accidents which would make Mary Bell look like a fool. All the energies of their nature were devoted to appearing to the greatest possible advantage in their charades, and Mary Bell was often blushing from pleasure instead of shyness without their being at all aware of it. The individual who beyond all comparison enjoyed all the rehearsals the most was Charles Wilmot. Though by no means addicted to what the Belmont family called fun, he was very fond of amusement, and these charades amused him in many ways. He had a remarkable power both of conceiving character and representing it, and the graceful facility with which he could improviseur a part was quite extraordinary. Without being at all a vain man, he liked greatly to exercise his power. It was a great amusement to him, and moreover, it was very pleasant to feel himself of such great importance to the troop as he was speedily made aware of being. The three Miss Belmonts were very handsome, and being constantly the object of attention and admiration to three very handsome girls can scarcely ever be disagreeable to any young man of five and twenty. But this was not all that Charles Wilmot had to interest, to charm, to enchant him. Who has not felt the value of a smile from those who smile rarely? Who has not felt the strange, mysterious attraction of extreme reserve when it relaxes into gentle kindness of manner toward themselves? It was impossible to watch the versatile talents of Wilmot, as Mary Bell now did, without being charmed by them. And it was equally so for a young girl who believed herself and her observations to be totally overlooked amidst the busy interest of what was going on, to keep such watchful guard over her countenance as to prevent its expression from being read by one who, despite his occupation, had still leisure enough to watch it keenly. Little did Mary Bell think that every smile that brightened her eye and dimpled round her mouth, nay, almost every thought that arose within her innocent heart, was seen, noted, and deeply cared for by Charles Wilmot. He was exceedingly well satisfied and considerably pleased by the undisguised admiration which flashed from the bright eyes of Fanny Belmont, but he was touched to the very soul by the unconscious involuntary repetition of it which he read in those of Mary Bell. When Charlotte smiled upon him in approval till she showed her magnificent teeth from ear to ear, he smiled at her in return, and each felt the pleasant consciousness of being thought exceedingly charming by the other. But when his eye caught the soft, sweet smile of Mary Bell, nothing but his watchful care not to bring upon her, and himself conjointly the observation of the family, prevented him from being at her side in a moment to ask her why she smiled, and whether she thought his conception of his character right or wrong. When the bright cheek of Margaret became brighter still as he acted with her, he thought her very lovely, and liked his occupation all the better for giving him the opportunity of looking at her. But if a blush mantled the soft cheek of Mary Bell as her eye met his, he longed to throw himself at her feet and confess at last that it was to please her, and her only, that he exerted himself. And could Mary Bell be quite unconscious of all this? No, not quite. There was enough of talent, enough of attraction in Charles Wilmot to touch the heart of any girl, if fancy-free, who had reason to believe that she had touched his. But alas, too greatly was the charm increased in the case of Mary Bell. She was surrounded by all the nearest relations she had in the world, save her father, and to all and each of them she felt and knew herself to be an object of contempt and ridicule. She never met the eye of either of them without reading in it something of reproof or of mockery. 
Her cousin William, indeed, often told her that she would be devilish handsome if she would leave off being so cursedly shy. But there was so much more of insult than of compliment in this that she shrunk from him with more repugnance than from either of the others, and would rather at any time have met the biting ridicule of the bright-eyed Fanny than the offensive compliments of her brother. Dangerous, indeed, was the contrast which the manners of Wilmot offered to this and the poor stranger felt it in her heart of hearts. Not that she dared to hope that Wilmot loved her. The very utmost flight of all the vanity in her composition could not carry her to such a height of presumption. But she was sure he pitied her, and was sure that he understood her feelings, though nobody else did. And that he did not consider shyness as precisely the same as mental imbecility. She was sure that he took pleasure, great pleasure, in seeing her amused by his performance. She was almost sure that he took more pleasure in pleasing her than anybody else. How angelic must be the mind in which pity could thus triumph over vanity. Mary Bell thought that she could never feel too grateful for such exceeding kindness, and thus, almost as a matter of duty, her gentle young heart melted away till every feeling was centered and absorbed in love. And that Charles Wilmot loved her, tenderly loved her in return, is most certain. In fact, he loved her even more than he was himself aware of, for his mind was at ease upon the subject. He saw plainly enough, and strange would it have been had he not, the effect produced upon her feelings by the contrast of his manner toward her with that of all others who surrounded her. He knew that he was loved. He knew that neither the Bolton Street aunt nor the naval father could find any reasonable objection to his alliance, and therefore reposed himself in perfect security upon a happy future, which required no anxious cares on his part to bring to fruition. The time he had fixed upon in his own mind for declaring his affection was the return of Captain Bell from his cruise, and in thus delaying it there was both kindness and discretion. Kindness, because he feared that did he make known his attachment while she continued in Bolton Street, her aunt and cousins would infallibly find means to turn the happiness he hoped to bestow into torment of some kind or other. And discretion, because he wisely remembered that having no living parent or other near relation to assist his judgment in the all-important matter of choosing a wife, it became his duty not to be over-hasty in deciding finally and forever upon a point so vitally important to his happiness. And thus, in the very fullest enjoyment of hope, as reasonable as it was delightful, his fancy amused, his talents displayed, his vanity gratified, his tenderest feelings excited, yet his heart completely fearless and at ease, it can hardly be doubted that Wilmot enjoyed the month of practicing most vividly. With intentions so generous, so honorable, so far beyond all that the very highest hopes of Mary Bell had ever suggested, how is it possible to say that Wilmot was acting otherwise than well and nobly? It would be unjust to say so, inasmuch as every thought and purpose of his heart was good. Yet there was a greater mixture of selfishness in the happiness he was enjoying than he had all suspected. Had he endeavored a little to put himself in the place of Mary Bell, had he endeavored to guess how she felt as silent, apart, and often unnoticed for hours together, she watched his lively spirits display themselves in unencumbered gay and gallant sayings and doings with her happy cousins. Had he done this, he might perhaps have perceived that it was possible his intended wife was less perfectly happy than she might have been had his cautiousness been a little less and his anxiety about her present feelings a little greater. Time galloped gaily along, however, with the charade players, and the day for which the exhibition was fixed was rapidly approaching, yet still the means of performing the last scene of Incubus had not appeared. Richard Belmont had told them to trust him, and they had done so rather longer, as it seemed, than was prudent, for a few days only remained for the practicing, yet still the contrivance he had promised was not forthcoming. Nothing could be better than the whole of Richard Belmont's performance of the agonies of a guilty man struggling with troubled dreams, and had the representation been a drama instead of a charade, there would have been no more occasion for an incubus to appear boldly upon the scene than for the ghosts of Banquo to appear at the table of Macbeth. But in the charade, it was clearly necessary that an incubus, as visible to the eye as to the mind, should be brought upon the scene, or the verbal catastrophe would be abortive. Confound the fellow, 
exclaimed Richard, having once again gone through the part, and the very next day being that fixed for the dress rehearsal. He swore by all the gods that a carpenter could invoke that his confounded skipjack should be here this morning. These words were scarcely uttered when the only servant permitted to approach the theatrical premises knocked at the door and announced the arrival of the anxiously expected mechanist. He was ordered to appear and did so instantly, bearing in his hand a something of very mysterious ugliness of form, which by the judicious use of the little cobbler's wax could be made to spring to a very considerable height. The first performance of the little monster was hailed with a perfect shriek of admiration and delight, and then the guilty Richard laid himself once more upon his restless couch and bade the tormentor do his worst. Again the cobbler's wax was judiciously applied, and again the hideous little figure sprang into the air. But instead of perching on the breast of the conscience-stricken Richard, it bounded pretty, pretty nearly in the opposite direction. That won't do, my good fellow, cried the sleeper, starting up. You could not have set it in the right direction. The experiment was repeated, and the thing sprang backwards, head over heels, very decidedly in the direction of the couch. But as to taking its station upon Richard's breast, no such purpose or such power appeared to exist in its wires. Again and again the experiment was repeated, but always with the same result, till at length it became evident to the whole party that it was impossible to direct its movements with sufficient accuracy to render it available. The disappointment produced by this failure was so great that Mrs. Belmont was unwilling that the astonished carpenter should witness it, and the man was hastily dismissed. And then it was really piteous to hear the exclamations of despair which burst from the troop, of late so enviable in their happiness. "'Good heaven!' cried poor Mrs. Belmont. "'What can I do? After such immense trouble, so much expense, and such expectations raised on all sides!' This contemps is really terrible. Nobody could comfort her. Everybody felt that, the, that every word she said was true, and that instead of exaggeration, she had not half expressed the extent of the disappointment which had fallen upon them. Fanny sat down in a corner and actually appeared to be weeping, till Mr. Wilmot, who the more firmly he felt himself devoted to Mary Bell, the more carefully avoided a premature discovery of his feelings, with his usual forgetfulness of what she might think or feel in the interval, repaired, with every appearance of assiduity, to the side of her most admired cousin, and appeared to be whispering words of comfort in her ear with a degree of earnestness that was really affectionate. It might fill many a page to tell all the anguish, the vehemently resisted but still unconquerable anguish, which wrung the heart of the unhappy Mary as she witnessed this seeming devotion. How vainly did she tell herself that she had no right to suffer, how vainly did she confess to her contrite heart that could all the world see her agonies, there would not be one, save her poor devoted father, who would not blame instead of pitying her. Oh, why had Wilmot ever drawn her heart, her soul, her long-schooled humble spirit from the shade in which they had contentedly nestled themselves for life? Mary Bell felt that it would have been very bitter to have listened to professions of love from Charles Wilmot, and then to have found those professions false. But as it now seemed to her, this misery would have been nothing in comparison to that of knowing that she had given her love unsought, and had now to watch the proof that it was unwished for and unvalued. Poor Mary Bell. She did the hearts of her fellow creatures injustice in thinking that none would pity her, for but few could have known what she felt and have refused to do so. This is a good time for a break, and when we get back, we will read the conclusion of Fanny Trollope's The Butt. back to I guess this is part two of part two but nobody did know what she felt poor little soul and while she was engaged in torturing herself as much as possible at one end of the room Charles Wilmot was exerting himself strenuously at the other in order to advance his own particular scheme of operations he had fancied once or twice of late that the bright eyes of Fanny had followed him rather too curiously when he had yielded to the temptation of walking off the stage and across the room to say a few words to Mary Bell 
on some pretense or other, for the purposes of indulging himself, the sight of her eyes raised to his face. And he was quite right. Fanny had observed him very curiously. Not about the week of the practising month had elapsed, ere this lively young lady had decided on seriously completing the conquest of Mr. Wilmot's heart, and permitting him, in due time, to become the lawful master of her destiny. It might, perhaps, have made some trifling difference in her speculations, had she been aware that the remarkable brilliance of talent displayed by the young man, and his greatly increased air of happy gaiety, arose not, as she supposed, from the felicity of being perpetually within reach of the eyes to which he had more than once alluded in her hearing, but entirely to the full contentment ensuing upon having made up his mind, beyond the reach of any further harassing doubts, to take the neglected Mary Bell for his wife. But most assuredly, she had no such stuff in her thoughts, and it was only within the last few days that she had taken it into her head to fancy that Mary Bell was putting herself ridiculously in Charles Wilmot's way, contriving somehow or other to make him speak to her, whether he wished it or not. Such a notion as this could not by possibility enter the head of such a young lady as Miss Fanny Belmont, especially when she was beginning to fancy herself very violently in love, for not more than the twentieth time in her life, without producing some troublesome results. A rapid soliloquy, mentally uttered, as she watched Wilmot's sudden approach to Mary Bell during the noisy moment which followed the entrance of the carpenter, may show what sort of results were probable in the present case. The eye that followed his movement was indeed bright, brighter perhaps than ever, but it could scarcely be called beautiful, for it boded no good to those it fell upon. If I believed it possible, if I only believed it possible, thought she, that Mary Bell was such an artful little demon as to endeavour to show him that she is not so great a fool as she looks, and not quite so hideously ugly and vulgar as she appears to the world in general. If I could only believe this possible, I would teach her to know her place in a manner she should not soon forget. But no, I have caught him, I know, I am sure of it. These detestable mutterings only arise from a silly sort of good nature on his part, which makes him fancy it amiable to notice her, because nobody else has patience to do it. But I know how charmingly gay and beautiful the little idiot looks when she is laughed at. It shall not be my fault if she does not put some of these peculiar graces in practice before the eyes of Wilmot. While these soft thoughts were revolving in the mind of the bright-eyed Fanny, the total discomfiture of all hope from the incubus of the carpenter was completed, the man dismissed, and the company left in the state of despair that has already been described. Fanny, exaggerating her sorrow till it seemed to relieve itself in tears, and brought Wilmot to her side as we have related. He whispered, he smiled, he took her hand. Fanny sent a rapid glance across the room and looked at Mary Bell. The eyes that were wont to love the ground were now fixed, intently fixed, upon her and Wilmot and their expression for that one instant was too full of woe to be mistaken. Indeed, whispered the heart, but not the lips of Fanny. It is so, isn't it? Then I must mind what I am about. Meanwhile, Richard, who, though treating the matter as he did everything else very lightly, felt that he was not only the responsible person upon this occasion, but also the one whose acting would be the most affected unless the loss of the mechanical incubus were in some way supplied, was eagerly turning in his thoughts every possible device for the purpose, and at length starting up, he walked over to his mother, still occupied in deploring his unhappy condition, and whispered a few words in her ear. She listened attentively, and started as he went on, as if some new and striking idea had been suggested to her. He then left her, and applied himself to the hopping machine, which the carpenter had left, as if still intent upon examining its capabilities. Mrs. Belmont, meanwhile, walked over to Mary Bell, and touching her on the shoulder, made a sign that she should follow her to the most distant window of the front drawing-room. Having reached it, she placed her with her back towards the party they had left, and thus addressed her. Mary Bell, you see the utter destruction that has fallen upon all our schemes in consequence of this disappointment. You must be conscious that you are in a great degree answerable for this, because of your having thought proper to give us so unmanageable a word, and therefore I think you must feel that it is your duty to get us out of the scrape. It is now quite impossible to give up the charade, on account of the great expense we have been at in preparing it. Your uncle, with all his sweet temper, would never forgive me, and depend upon it, he would never forgive you. The only way to remedy this is by your undertaking the part yourself. Aunt! gasped Mary Bell in reply, and it was the only word she uttered. Now, do not try my patience too severely, Mary Bell, resumed Mrs. Belmont in a low, deep whisper 
and with an emphasis that might truly have startled a less timid spirit than that of Mary Bell. I really am in no state to be trifled with. I tell you, Mary Bell, that you will be guilty of a great crime if you refuse me. I stand here as the representative of your father, and I command you to do what I require. Heaven help me, exclaimed the poor girl, pressing her hand upon her forehead in great agony. What is it you require of me? What? A mere nothing, child. Not the thousandth part of the exertion that I and all your cousins are making for the general amusement, and certainly it will be the most abominable piece of selfishness that ever was practiced if you refuse. But it is impossible you can refuse. It would be perfectly diabolical, and for your dear father's sake I will not believe it possible. But what is it you would have me do? repeated the poor girl, her lips trembling and her complexion as white as marble. Come with me, my dear child, replied Mrs. Belmont, with sudden kindness of manner and passing her arm under that of her niece to lead her back to the party. Come with me and you will find that we shall all be ready enough to contrive that it shall be made as little troublesome to you as possible. And besides, you know, it will last but for an instant, and you have not a word to utter. But what is it I am to do? What? What? reiterated Mary Bell in a voice of anguish, as she remembered the hundred and fifty guests whose eyes were to be fixed upon her. Do not be so dreadfully affected, child, returned her aunt, and think so very much more of yourself than anybody else does. Upon my word, it looks very much as if you were trying to set your cap at some particular person, and hope to draw his attention by all these grimaces. Perhaps you expect that Mr. Wilmot, for instance, may fall in love with your excessive modesty, but you had better let all that alone, Mary Bell. Your good father would by no means approve it, I can tell you. Mary Bell now yielded unresistingly to the impulse of her aunt's arm. Had she been leading her to the edge of a precipice for the avowed purpose of throwing her over it, she would have done the same. Your cousin, Mary Bell, is willing to help you, said Mrs. Belmont as they approached the party. Nothing can be easier, you know, than for her to perform the part which she describes the child as having taken, in the representation she saw of a charade on this tiresome word. Oh, what a dear good girl, exclaimed Charlotte. How very kind of her. I declare I did not believe that she had half good nature enough to do any such thing. Oh, yes, Mary Bell can be very good-natured when she chooses it, said Margaret, laughing. Remember how promptly she wrote down her three words before any one of us had begun ours? But then, to be sure, it was a gentleman who asked her, and that makes a difference sometimes. However, it is Mamma that has done it now, and nobody can laugh at Mary Bell for that. Laugh at her, indeed? I am sure we are all excessively obliged to her, said Richard, coming forward with an air of more civility and less mockery than he had ever before used in addressing her. Please to observe said William Belmont, that there is a great deal to be done yet before she can be ready. There is the dress to be thought of and to be made, and besides, she will have to practice. We all know how fond Mary Bell is of stitching, said Richard, relaxing a little from his gratitude into his usual tone. So I shall recommend her sitting to work instantly and manufacturing her infernal costume herself. But will Miss Mary Bell really have to manufacture her own horns? demanded Morton, who had by this time become the pet of the whole family, his happy propensity to joke-making. This sally about the horns delighted them all so greatly, and the image of Mary Bell assiduously preparing her own monstrosities appeared to them so irresistibly comic that notwithstanding the pressure of business at the moment, they one and all burst forth into a paroxysm of laughter, in which Morton joined as heartily as his modesty at having produced it would let him. Fanny, meanwhile, was doing l'impossible to keep Wilmot by her side, and to prevent him as much as might be, from perceiving what was going on, till the hapless Mary Bell had gone too far to recede. She was making him hold one end of a wreath of flowers that she was adding to the two at the other, and his leaving it would evidently have been fatal to the operation. She had contrived, too, so to place him, that his back was turned towards the stage, and the party assembled on it. But when this burst of laughter caught his ear, he turned round, and his eye instantly catching the figure of Mary Bell in the midst of the party, Though her pale face was in another direction, he inquired rather eagerly what was the cause of their mirth. I'm glad you can leave Fanny for one single moment, exclaimed Margaret, for I think we shall want your assistance yet before we shall actually be able to set Mary Bell at work. We have none of us forgotten the instantaneous effect of the gold pencil case which you put into her hands when we were writing words. And now, if you please, Mr. Wilmot, we want you to put a steel needle into her hands in exactly the same fascinating manner, for we want her to go to work without losing a moment. 
This speech produced perhaps more than its desired effect both on Wilmot and Mary Bell. He instantly determined that he would not be driven by the detestable veracity of Miss Margaret into abandoning the scheme he had laid down before himself, of keeping them all in ignorance of his intentions to the return of his beloved's father. Delighting in the idea of carrying her off from among them as his bride, before they had recovered from their horror and astonishment upon finding upon which of the party his choice had fallen, Sir Charles Wilmot was not at all more blind than other gentlemen of five thousand a year, to the extent of the field from among which he might have chosen without danger of rejection. No, nothing, he was quite determined, should induce him to abandon his scheme, and in order to avoid the danger of being tempted to betray himself, by interfering with too evident an interest in what was going on, which he doubted not was some new jest against his love, the endurance of which he should soon be rewarded by unbounded happiness. To avoid this danger, he gently placed his end of the wreath between Fanny's fingers and left the room. On Mary Bell, the effect of Margaret's words were more powerful still. The opening phrase, I am glad you can leave Fanny for a single moment, seemed to carry an arrow of fire through her heart while those which followed, hinting at his influence upon herself, instantly determined her to do and to suffer whatever was proposed to her by her aunt and cousins, to prevent the possibility of seeming to be influenced by him. "'You have half killed poor Wilmot,' said Fanny, as soon as the doors closed behind him. "'The idea of seeing Mary Bell performing with horns and a tail is too much, and he has run away to enjoy a laugh that he thought it would be rude to indulge in here.' The bright-eyed Fanny, it must be observed, had her face turned towards the party, and therefore was perfectly aware of all that had been going on, though Wilmot had not. "'Let us have a joke against Wilmot,' said Richard. "'Don't let him know anything more about Mary Bell's acting than he does now, which I dare say he will forget when his laugh is over. It would be such good fun to see him stare when he sees her dressed up as a devil.' This proposal was highly approved by the whole party, whose spirits were quite on alt again, at the idea of having conquered their difficulties, and Mary Bell was charged not to say a single word before him for her life, for her life? Could her life only have been sacrificed by her letting him know what was going on? He would not have been long ignorant of it. No, not though the piercing eyes of Fanny had been fixed on her as she betrayed it. But would they not have said that she was endeavouring to draw his attention by her grimaces? This would have been worse than death, and this she was determined to avoid, let it cost her what it might. Mrs. Belmont very judiciously decided that Mary Bell's own needle should not be the one employed to fabricate the dress that was to envelop her, and one of the women, who had been for many days employed in making the theatrical costumes of the party, was set to work upon it. Nothing could be more ludicrous than the effect of the horns and fiery eyes. The tale, still strongly advocated by Fanny, was outvoted by the rest, who, probably fearing that the poor girl might resist this addition, proposed that her body should be enveloped in a black and flame-coloured mantle, with nothing of monstrosity visible but the head. Richard judiciously pointed out to his cousin the completeness of the disguise, observing that nobody could possibly find out whether it was a woman or a boy who performed it. This was evidently true, and though trembling in every joint, Mary Bell repeated her promise of appearing in it, only making the condition that she was to lay her hands upon his breast, and not to attempt the spring which had been previously proposed. After a little opposition, which they all pretty well knew would be in vain, this variation was agreed to, and at length, everything being completed, the dressed rehearsal took place on the evening preceding that fixed for the public performance. At this rehearsal, Mary Bell was not present, an omission the more readily excused by the manager, because her dress was not completely ready, and gladly acceded to by the rest. For the sake of the fun, they expected from witnessing Wilmot's puzzle when the performance took place, as to who it was, alas, who was performing the incubus. This indulgence enabled Mary Bell to absent herself entirely, and go to bed, and greatly was she in want of this relief, for her struggles and agitation had made her very seriously ill, and had they felt her pause, they might have doubted of their incubus for the morrow. At length that longed-for morrow came. The stage looked beautiful, the dresses were perfect, the performers in the highest possible spirits, and the company punctual beyond the most sanguine hopes of the anxious manager but Mary Bell had not yet appeared in the green room. Wilmot, who had been looking forward with no little delight to the exciting hurry and bustle of the performance, as likely to give him more opportunity than he had ever yet enjoyed, of addressing from time to time a few words to his beloved, without being very strictly watched as he thus indulged himself, began to feel a little fidgety at her absence, and at last, under shelter of his well-practised indifference of voice and manner, he ventured to say, "'Will not Miss Bell come amongst us?' I think she might be useful in many ways, though she does not act. 
Exceedingly well pleased at the tone and manner in which this was said, as well as that everything else about her, Mrs. Belmont replied with the greatest good humour, Oh dear, yes, poor little thing. I told her that she would be wanted behind the scenes, and I dare say she will be here presently. But I rather suspect that she is giving some last touches of her incessant needle to the dress she is to wear at the little dance we are to have after supper. Mr. Wilmot strongly suspected on his side that this was, in plain English, a falsehood, and that it was greatly more likely that Mary Bell had been ordered to place herself on one of the farthest seats prepared for the audience than that she should be employed as described. He was a good deal provoked at this, and remembering one or two recent manoeuvrings of the susceptible Miss Fanny, gave her credit for having managed to keep her cousin out of his way. For a moment he felt a strong inclination to be mischievous, and to declare that he was taken ill and could not play. But many excellent reasons quickly occurred to prevent his doing any such thing. In the first place, he was really too good-natured. In the next, he felt partly sure that Mary Bell would contrive to see him, and his acting, however well he might be prevented from seeing her. And thirdly, he recovered his good humour and his good spirits at once, by remembering how short a time he should be able to convince Miss Fanny, without having recourse to any untruth whatever, that the laughed-at, scorned, and scouted butt of the family was the chosen of his heart, instead of her bright-eyed, intriguing self. This last reflection made him spring across the stage with a bound, and descend in an attitude as light as that of the Bolognese John's Mercury. Exactly behind the curtain, when he performed his succession of bows, in testimony of his impatience for its removal, and it was removed, and a room full of elegantly dressed company was displayed to the actors. An exquisitely pretty little stage, with a charming group of actors upon it, was made visible to the company. The whole thing went admirably, and Wilmot himself became too animated by the great applause bestowed on his acting to feel more than a passing moment of vexation at the non-appearance of Mary Bell. He once more ventured to ask Miss Belmont why Miss Bell was not among them, but being told in reply that she had preferred being among the audience, he soothed himself with a pleasant conviction that the preference arose from her wish to see his acting to advantage, and the belief that she was looking at him gave grace and spirit to every word he uttered and to every movement he made. At length the curtain was let down for the preparation of the final act of Incubus, and then it was and then only that Wilmot remembered the difficulties which had existed about the procuring someone who could enact the demon nightmare. It was a scene in which he had nothing to do, and which seemed to him of such trifling consequence that any device, however clumsy, might be, might be made to answer the purpose. He did, however, condescend to inquire of Fanny, who was, as usual, standing very near him, in the space left at the end of the back drawing-room, behind the stage, what they had done about the Inglis. Oh, you shall see, we have managed it very well. Such a glorious pair of horns. At this moment, the door of the back drawing-room, which was skilfully left without the side wing, opened, and a slight figure enveloped in a black and flame-coloured mantle, with a hideous head, surrounded by a pair of monstrous horns, was led in by Mrs. Belmont. The whole of the dramatic troupe, with the exception of Richard, who had already taken his station on the couch, which had been placed on the stage, were assembled in this little green room, and from one or more burst a shout of suppressed laughter as this ludicrous figure appeared though a pair of blazing red eyes glared from the mask, a space had been left through which those of the wearer might look out, and by means of this contrivance, Mary Bell was enabled to see Charles Wilmot's ecstasy of mirth at her appearance, and also that Fanny, overcome by the vehemence of the merry convulsion that had seized on her, had found support on Wilmot's shoulder, on which she rested her arm and her head, apparently unconscious of what she was about, in the irresistible fun of the moment. The slight figure of Mary Bell trembled, and Mrs. Belmont, was watching her with all the keenness of a manager's anxiety, instantly seized her arm and led her on the stage, immediately concealing herself behind the wing, and at the same time making a signal for the curtain to be drawn up. Behind all stages constructed as carefully as that of Mrs. Belmont's ways and means are contrived by which the performers who are not on the stage may, if they choose, watch the proceedings of those who are. By these means, nearly every one of the troop were able to watch the proceedings of the incubus. They made one step forward and paused. Go to him at once, said the alarmed Mrs. Belmont in a shrill whisper from behind. But Mary Bell heard her not. She heard only the burst of laughter from the audience which greeted her entrance. She saw too the multitude of eyes that were fixed upon her, but yet saw more plainly still the head of Fanny on the shoulder of Wilmot. No idea that Wilmot knew her not ever crossed her brain. She had heard him joining in the mocking shout that had greeted her, and the united laughter of the whole audience only seemed to her as the echo of his. That one step forward was her last effort of obedience to her aunt. She uttered one long, piercing shriek and fell senseless on the stage. What was there in that awful cry that 
could recall the gentle accents of Mary Bell. Yet the moment it reached his ears, Wilmot felt certain that it was she who had uttered it. In an instant he was bending over her on the stage, and in the next he had clasped her in his arms and was bearing her from it. Mrs. Belmont ordered the curtain to drop, and the puzzled audience were left to make out the shroud as they might. Doubts, guesses, conjectures of all sorts occupied the company before the curtain. Rage, disappointment and dismay were in full action behind it. When the envelopments of the hapless Mary Bell were removed, she was found to be perfectly senseless, and from her ghastly aspect might have been accounted dead had not the voice of the distracted and repentant Wilmot, who held her in his arms with a hand pressed upon her, still fluttering heart, exclaimed, She lives! Send for assistance! Yet even then, while the sweet, faded flower lay thus low before them, the idea of their entertainment and of the splendid party assembled to witness it was predominant in the thoughts of the whole Belmont race. What an absurd excess of shyness and self-love! was Mrs. Belmont's first exclamation on seeing her niece brought back insensible. Throw a glass of water in her face, was the second, and then, without paying any further attention to her, she entered in an agony of agitation and alarm into a discussion with her sons and daughters as to the best mode of passing over this most provoking hitch in the performance. The readiness with which this was done might have added to their theatrical laurels, had not all their remedial measures been rendered abortive by the disappearance of Wilmot. While the whole of the Belmont family were engaged, body and soul, in endeavouring to patch the broken scene, Wilmot had borne Mary Bell out of the room, and with the assistance of one of the servants, had laid her on her little attic bed. A bribe, liberally administered, dispatched another servant to summon a neighbouring apothecary, and in a few moments the miserable young man saw the eyes open, upon whose soft glances he had been living in secret with such luxury of love and hope. And how did they greet him now? Did he meet that look which had so often told his heart he was beloved, even though his lips had resolutely abstained from asking the avowal? Alas, he met only the unmeaning stare of an idiot. She is ill, sir. She is very ill, he exclaimed, addressing the apothecary. Animation is restored, but she is not in her senses. We must have patience, sir, was the reply. For months and months and months, poor Wilmot struggled to have patience and the wretched father, too, returned to claim his one only treasure. He strove to wait with patience also, but it was all in vain. The spark divine was quenched forever, and though Mary Bell lived many years, the mild, gentle light of her angelic spirit never beamed from those downcast eyes again. was an intense story. It really is like a kind of novel condensed down into 32 pages. Yes. And those sentences are tongue twisters. Yeah. I couldn't tell the whole time either if it was going to be just like a comic satire or a tragedy. Like it kind of goes back and forth the whole time. Yeah, I think she's quite, I don't know, it's part of the skill of her storytelling that you're not really sure what's going to happen. Because I think that ending, as much as it is maybe not the most satisfying, is quite surprising. Yeah, well, and I think it makes sense because it's, I mean, I think that the story, it it tricks us into thinking it's a romance for a while, but really it's a condemnation of, of the Belmont family and their obsession with fun and yeah, and I think it's a kind of condemnation in part of what, as well of Wilmot when he's constantly going, oh, that's fine, she's going to find out that I like her and we're going to patch it all up. And that actually, that's what's going to be the most fun, is when I reveal. Yeah, I just want to strangle Wilmot, really. So frustrating. Mm-hmm. People aren't mind readers, you have to tell them. <laughs> it's It's like when your friend has a crush on someone or something and they keep going, oh, do you think they like me? And... You say to them, 
I don't know, you've got to tell them and just find out whether it's mutual. <laughs> Very impatient in that sense. I'm just like, just tell. Mm-hmm. Me too. That's why I don't usually read romance because the genre exists because people don't communicate with each other and I'm so frustrated by that. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's such a crucial plot point of any romance. It's just like, just talk to the person. Especially in the, I was going to say, in the Victorian times, you write a letter and then you don't have to think about it, but that's almost, there's another aspect to it where you don't know whether you're going to hear back or when you hear back. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I would say this story is quite good for, sorry, I'm recovering my voice still, but I think it's also useful for, or like, interesting game of charades, because obviously we have it in the 21st century, but it's quite different. Yes. Well, actually, they play this in Jane Eyre, too. They, I feel like they call it charades. But it's tableau with a guessing aspect. I feel like it's in Jane Eyre. There's definitely others that it's in, but the very specific, you know, get a polysyllabic word and act out each part. Yeah, I'm more used to see, like, just seeing the tableau, I guess. I can't think of examples except maybe mm, Edith Wharton's House of Mirth, where it's just. Uh, a scene that's supposed to depict a common image or even like a painting or something i know what you mean and there is i think we we're talking last week about the tableau in daniel deronda where they act out a scene from the winter's tale and i can't remember whether people have to guess what that is or it's just very much a we are acting out a scene from the winter's tale mm-hmm but I think that there was an element of guessing in Jane Eyre, which is the only other place that I really remember seeing it. Pretty sure. I don't know. It's interesting, though, how, how it's evolved. But I think it's, I don't know if it's like, because we play it with one, pl- one person at a time acting out a word now, but I wonder if it's connected, like, our attention spans are a lot different than the Victorians were. Yeah, like, I was really surprised when they started talking about practicing it. And I was like, you don't practice charades. You just do it. And they, yeah, they're treating it like a, an actual like dramatic production. <laughs> yeah, being very serious about the set and costuming. Uh, we should, as Victorianists, we should have charades at our major conferences. Like that should just be one of the activities that we do. <laughs> like this style of charades. I think we should, absolutely. This conversation always makes me just think of the. Gilmore Girls episode where they're doing the tableau vivant or like festival of pictures. Yes, yeah. And that's a lot more like what I was saying in Edith Wharton's um, House of Mirth. Yeah, that's closer to what I think of than... Mm-hmm. Which is a tableau, not a... Because you don't actually act, it's just a still life with people. Yeah. Yeah. So what made you choose this story? Was there something specific about it? I'm just curious. Part of it was practicality, Mm. so I think I mentioned before that I've got a spreadsheet of everything that they published, and I knew that at 32 pages it's a good length, basically. Mm -hmm. So part of it was that practicality, but I also do think it's a fun side of it and a real insight into her exploration of manners. Mm -hmm. Not quite psychological in the sense that we see in Elliot, for example, but I think she does to some extent start thinking about the psychological background of characters' motivations. Yeah, and it's really interesting. So group psychology, I think that's what it's called. I don't know. Just the study of how people behave in groups became a thing in the Victorian period. And I don't think that it was quite at this point. Was When was this published? Remind me, sorry. I believe it's 44. Yeah, so it group psychology starts to really gain ground in, um, uh, in the late 50s. Is it called crowd psychology? I don't even know. I can't word today either. I know know what you're referring to, but I can't think what it's called. I just googled and crowd psychology seems to be a thing. (laughs) So we'll go with that. Um, Yeah, so in the aftermath of um, the cholera outbreaks, which we mentioned actually in the Around the World part of our Francis Milton Trollop biography episode, the first part of that, um, people started to think about how groups behave and the and what we can understand by um instead of studying individual humans what what happens when we study groups and i think that it's really got its roots in these kinds of 
novelistic or uh, fictional portrayals of the way that people's behavior acts are changes when they're in groups. Yeah, especially the family group. I mean, part of why I was drawn to this story is I've read that description on the very first page of the first part where they're talking about the family and Morton says to Wilmot, father, mother, sons and daughters, all handsome. I do not exactly mean that Mrs. Belmont's eyes are as bright as her daughter Fanny's or that the gentleman-like looking old man, her husband, is as striking an appearance as his son William. And I kind of read that and I was thinking I can imagine someone saying that possibly about the Trollops. It's this kind of description of a family and maybe it's a contextual thing that we always think of them as a family. Mm, yeah. Rather than I see individual parts, but I think the family aspect kind of leapt out of me on the first page. It's hard to also, I think part of why this is such a dense story is because it has so many characters. Contemporary fiction writers will often say your number of characters should be proportional to your length, and so the shorter the piece, the fewer characters. That's, I mean, there are exceptions to that rule, but it's really hard to give each character a motive and to have a satisfying resolution with such a large cast. But I think she pulls it off, although the resolution is really kind of frustrating. It makes sense to the story, though. I mean, another thing that's interesting about it is that she does break a lot of those contemporary fiction rules. Like, Mm -hmm. starting a piece of work with that much dialogue is pretty frowned upon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing that she does do that modern writers are really kind of the advice that you see a lot if you're a writer working now is to uh, be mean to your characters, by which I mean like not to go easy on them, to give them real obstacles and real consequences for their actions, and that's definitely happening here, at least with Wilmot. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Mary Bell is the only person in this story that Trollope actually likes. Mm-hmm. Poor Mary Bell. Poor, poor Mary Bell. And also I find it really weird that her full name is used every time she's discussed. It's never Mary. I think she's Miss Bell once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, yeah, that really kind of sets her off as an outsider. Well, I mean, the the men are the uh, Morton and Wilmot. Well, no, they get their last names sometimes. Yeah, so she's definitely an outsider when everyone else has a shortened more familiar name. Threw me off as well because there was a somewhat well-known murderer called Mary Bell. Killed two people when she was 11. Wow. So as someone with a true crime interest, it was really throwing me off. I was like, no, not Mary Bell. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. (laughs) It's like if you name a character Lizzie Borden. Yeah. And then expect readers to sympathise. I think as well subconsciously, I literally, I said to you earlier that I was at a conference on Monday. I was speaking on the theme of acting. So I think that might have subconsciously led me to pick this. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, I think it's actually really uh, good representative of this time period in literature, too. There's almost always going to be tableau of some sort in a novel in the 40s. Yeah, I think it's a good representative of uh, periodical literature as well, because this is serialised between February and March 1844. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in the fact that in the second part, they, the people who set the type started uh, smooshing together paragraphs, uh, because I think probably because the story is so long, but you can see all of these places where there should be a break like when dialogue happens or when there's extra space that's set. And uh, I think part of it is to even out the lines, but part of it, I would guess, is that it's long because they were actually breaking paragraphs more regularly in the first part, if I remember right. Yeah, because it goes almost right to the end of the last page and it is consistently at 16 pages in both, mm-hmm. which is long anyway for a piece of periodical fiction. I mean, I know Dickens gives eight pages when fiction is serialized in all the year round in household words. Yeah. Um, so I should, I think this is actually a good point to direct new listeners to um, our episode in season one called the Newspaper Novels, which kind of discusses the, um, the basics of serial publishing and why it's important in the Victorian period. Yeah, and it 
since it's not one of her more common ones, it's unlikely that it's digitized and free in the U.S., but maybe I'll dig around and see what I can find. Well, I found these on ProQuest, who digitize a lot of periodicals, which you do need institutional access for. Mm -hmm. In the UK, you can also look at a lot of 19th century books through the, I think it's British Library, but it's historical text, so I'll can put the link to that in the show notes and then people can explore around and find their own. Yeah, and it could be on Hatha Trust or um, archive.org. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the good thing with periodical fiction is you can usually, if it's a semi-famous periodical, you can find it by going through that route rather than looking for the author because that's why it's a lot easier to access anything that was published in all the year round. Archive.org. I love how everyone's, as soon as you mention either of them, everyone has thoughts and feelings. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I think that's all we've got for you today, listeners. We'll be back next month with an episode about Thomas Trollope and his first wife, Theodosia Garo, and uh, it'll be great. I'll leave you to potentially explore Francis Milton Trollope a little bit more, and yeah, be back with her son, daughter-in-law. Yes, so thanks for listening. Yes, thank you as always. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbill. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, sung by Mr. George J. Gaskin. A little maiden climbed an old man's feet, and for his glory to lock his lips. Why are you single? Why live alone? Have you no babies? Have you no home? I had a sweetheart years, years ago. Well, tears now and you will soon go. Let's do the story. I'll tell it all. I believe her face lives. All of the music for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Today's background music was Claude Debussy's Arabesque, number one, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. And our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball.